Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with the author Rory Stewart. We were in um, a conference room in the uh, Houses of Parliament because he is also an MP and one of the things we spoke to him about was the effort that he's put into balancing his um, political life and his writing life Um, and as he describes, um, this balances with great difficulty. But we also talked about um, his relationship with his father and the writing of his two most famous books. It was a really interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Very much for agreeing to speak with us and and for meeting us here in what is a pretty a room with a pretty amazing view. Um, we'd like to uh, start off by asking you about your kind of entry into writing and your kind of your, your beginnings. Well, thank you, thank you. I mean, just just to explain the view, we're, we're looking here at this building, Westminster Hall, which is nearly a, a, well, almost exactly a thousand years old now, um, and was the largest secular building in Europe and through that door that you're looking at the king's champion rode on his horse with a gauntlet flung it down at the coronation to challenge anyone to fight the king and this is also the same door that Charles I Thomas More William Wallace walked through before they got their heads chopped off She just said that we're in a slightly less distinguished building on the other side of the road at present Uh, Yeah. yeah Happy right. memories for me, though. I, used, I worked here very briefly, so... <laughs> um, no, uh, sorry, your question. <laughs> Back to the question. So, entry into writing. Um, I suppose um, I started trying to write a little bit more seriously when I was at school. And I was, I guess, 14, 15. And I had a very, very serious... Creative writing teacher, and I wanted to write quite flippant stuff on um, which was sort of fantasy, and he wanted uh, me to explore my adolescent soul. So all the pressure was on being the ideal adolescent. So I was supposed to be writing about problems with my parents, problems with my sexuality, and here was I trying to produce this slightly sort of. Uh, cheesy fantasy writing. Did you know it was cheesy at the time, or is it only in hindsight? Well, actually, uh, um, it was. Uh, from my point of view, I was I was having fun. I mean, I, I was enjoying the practice of making up stories, and and I, and f- for better or for worse, as a fourteen, fifteen year old, I didn't spend much time brooding on my soul or my relationships. So, from the point of view of my teachers, it was very disappointing. He he was an older man who I think got a sort of almost voyeuristic pleasure from young boys reflecting on their We, their we had angst. Patrick Kingsley on the show a few weeks ago and we, we asked him, he went to Eton and we asked him about that so we feel that we should, we should mention get that elephant in the room. Was that, a, you know, do you feel that that experience or the, the opportunities you had there have, have played a role in your subsequent literary career? Um, I think it probably held me back a bit. Oddly, I mean, I think what it did is it gave me a very formal academic education. But I didn't really rediscover the confidence to write again until I was in my early 20s. And then I really found it through writing about other people's countries. Mm. Uh, initially about Indonesia and then elsewhere. And, and writing first for the London Review of Books, which was my first big long-form article. Um, and actually, I think in a way, I... For me as a writer, uh, I found it much easier to write in a very impersonal way. So almost all my writing, particularly my early writing, is very deliberately um, impersonal objective. It's attempts to describe as truthfully as I can what I'm looking at. But I, as the narrator, almost never appear. You almost never hear what I'm, why I'm stuck in the middle of the jungle in Jaya or why I'm walking across Afghanistan and what my motivations or emotions or past are. Um, uh, so it, it, it's been... Um, yeah, it took, took me some time to recover from the sense that I wasn't a real writer because I, I didn't do deep and meaningful introspection. Did you discover at that time um, people or writers who you really admired, who you were later to go on to kind of have in mind when you started your own writing? So the... 
writer that I was really interested in and obsessed with initially uh, was Bruce Chapman. And I came, having devoured everything he'd written and sort of memorised huge chunks of his writing, and I can still recite pages of him, I came to really hate him and mistrust him and decide he was a, a monstrous fraud. Because it was made up, because elements of in Patagonia were, were fictionalised. And I began to realise through travelling and walking just the ways in which it was made up. I mean, it, you know, t- walking across Afghanistan and helped me to understand that um, when he said, never again will I catch the scent of a snow leopard to 10,000 feet, never, never, never. I thought he was like, wait a second, you didn't smell a snow leopard, you have no idea what a snow leopard smells like. <laughs> and I also realised that, you know, he writes a lot about the incredible mystical power of walking, but because I walked for 21 months, you know, I walked 6,000 miles, 25, 30 miles a day for 550 days, I came to realize I knew much more about walking than this guy did, and what he meant by walking had no relationship to what I was doing. Do you think that there's a kind of lineage of, maybe travel writing is a problematic term, but you know, within English travel writing, Lee Fermor, Byron, Chatwin, do you see yourself in any way in that tradition or answering to that tradition? Yeah, I see myself in deep rebellion against that tradition. And it's a tradition that fascinated me and that I then decided was profoundly dishonest and now makes me sick. Thesinger as well? No, Thesinger I'm more comfortable with. Okay. Uh, but the Lee Fermer, Byron, Chapman tradition, um, I now feel is incredibly overwritten. It's absurdly um, inflected with a strange form of decadent aestheticism. It's um, too often relies on essentially mocking foreigners uh, and is incredibly apolitical, which offends me. Very, very unaware of the actual political context of people's lives. It's anthropologically primitive. I mean, it has no real interest in the actual structures of society and how everything is a perfectly turned anecdote. And the most offensive element of it all is that nothing is ever boring, whereas the reality of travel is that, you know, I'm walking and six, seven hours out of eight, I'm grumbling to myself about a blister that's forming or any kind of where I'm going or pack is hurting my shoulders and maybe you know an hour two hours a day I have a spiritual experience where I feel that I'm liberated but and a lot of the time you know I don't speak the local language very well I'm only half picking up what somebody's saying to me I've probably got slightly the wrong end of the stick I I can't quite gather enough information about this place I'm in all that bewilderment confusion disappointment boredom travel is just central to it. And that's why the writers that I admire are much more people like V.S. Naipaul. We're going to turn um, back in a, uh, in a little while, back to sort of um, your, your books, but we wanted to ask you about your kind of early, you know, once you'd, you'd left school, your early career and um, your time in, in the Foreign Office. Sure. So, uh, you'd like me to just summarise what happened? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we're, I, we're desperate to get onto the book, so, so I want you so, to... So, well, very quickly, I'll accelerate forward. So, I, I left school. I uh, joined the army, very briefly, uh, for a year before university. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in the Black Watch, which was a Highland Regiment, uh, infantry regiment. And I spent uh, a cold uh, few months wandering around Shropshire in a kilt with mm-hmm. a red hack on my head. Uh, I then went to university, I then joined the Foreign Office and I was posted to Indonesia for two years and then I was sent as the British representative to Montenegro and then I took two years off and I walked across and by walked I mean literally often I say to people I, I walked from Turkey to Bangladesh and they say oh I did that too and I'm like what if somebody else did this and they mean that they hitchhiked on a truck but I literally put one foot in front of another 
across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, staying in 550 different village houses. Uh, then I was posted to uh, Iraq, uh, where I was part of the coalition invasion. I was made the acting governor of one province and then the deputy governor of another province in southern Iraq, Marshana region. Uh, and then I moved to Afghanistan where I set up an NGO and I lived there for three years, restoring the old city of Kabul and supporting traditional craftspeople. And then I taught briefly in the United States and then I became a member of parliament and now I am being Minister of the Environment. And then I was the International Development Minister for the Middle East and Asia. And then I was the Foreign Office Minister for Africa and now I'm in charge of prisons. Can I ask what drew you to the Foreign Office initially and then what drew you to take this sort of two-year... Um, period out of it? So I think I've always been very interested in public service and the idea of Britain and I loved sort of a combination of what felt to me like glamour and patriotism in the army and the foreign office. I mean these things sort of appealed to me uh, emotionally, um, as I was growing up, a lot of my heroes were soldiers and diplomats. In a way that I still actually find quite difficult to explain. So when um, my father-in-law, who's an American, mm-hmm. uh, said to me, um, "Why do you admire Lawrence of Arabia?" I found myself completely unable to communicate it to him uh, because he wasn't interested, I felt in the same way as I am, in warfare. I mean, if you're not interested in what it takes to be a good guerrilla commander or the fact that he attacked Aqaba from the rear or did a particularly heroic desert crossing, if these aren't the values that you admire, then it's quite difficult to communicate um, why you'd find that admirable. So that's what drew me into those professions. Mm. And then why did I take the two years off? Because, of course, what I found... (laughs) doing it is that, of course, the actual reality of doing it doesn't quite add up to whatever the my adolescent fantasy of this job was supposed to be. And were um, you in the straight foreign office, or were you a spy, Rory? Um, I was in the straight foreign office. Having been disappointed both in your um, your first experience of, of several um, writers you admired, and then possibly in your initial career, you took this, sort of, you know, two years off to walk... Um, why did you choose the areas that you, you chose to walk through and then what led you to write about um, your experiences? So I wanted to walk all the way around the world mm. and I thought I'd begin with some of the harder countries so I thought places like Afghanistan would be tougher to walk across so the idea was that I was going to walk across Asia and then I was going to get a boat and then I was going to walk across Latin America and then I was going to get a boat and then I would walk from Portugal back to Turkey again and that would complete my Promotion, yeah. and it was going to take me, um, I thought, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so those countries initially were driven by a sense that I was, and also seasons, which all went wrong. But I had some sort of idea that the late autumn was the ideal time mm-hmm. to cross Turkey. In fact, I got seasons almost exactly wrong. I tried to walk across Pakistan and India in midsummer. And I walked across Afghanistan in midwinter. Did you have a model in mind for that, in terms of a traveller in whose footsteps you were going, or and had you already decided at that point that you were in opposition to the the Lee Fermor Chatwin tradition? I think I probably at that stage still uh, was. <laughs> was in a complicated relationship. I must say, to some extent, I was competing with them. Is it just an age thing? I mean, are they just yeah. writers that everyone loves when they're young and then becomes revolted by as you mature? Did you take your books with them as well? Uh, uh, I destroyed a Chapman book at some point. <laughs> um, destroyed how? Yeah, what was your method? Uh, so, I, I think... Was it like a losing of faith thing? Yeah. Well, so Christ, it wasn't Chapman, but it was another contemporary writer who I'm, I'm not going to be mean about. But, um, but with him, I actually threw him out the window. I was reading him and got so angry. I, the book went out the window. Yeah. 
Um, and another one I burnt in the middle of a leopard sanctuary in, in, um, in Nepal. And how did the, the trip, how did it end up from being this planned four-year thing to, to what it was? And then how did it become the book? So what happened is that I couldn't get into Afghanistan. The Taliban wouldn't let me into Afghanistan. So I'd crossed Iran. And I then had hopped to Pakistan, did India and Nepal. Then 9-11 happened. The Taliban fell. So suddenly I got an opportunity to walk across Afghanistan. So I returned to Western Afghanistan around. Southern towards East. And during the course of the journey across Afghanistan, I decided that I'd done enough. And I'd done enough in two ways. I'd done enough because I felt actually that walk across Afghanistan was so extraordinary. I mean, it gave me so much that I'd been looking for in the walk in the first place that I didn't feel I needed to do any more walking. And also, at the same time, a sense that I had taken so many risks walking across Afghanistan that it wasn't really fair to my mother to... So I sort of made a bet with myself that if I got to Kabul, yeah. I'd come home and stop, stop doing this. There's um, sort of an, an unlikely voice of reason in that section of the book where you're talking about... Um, meeting sort of two members of the security service. Can you relate that, that story where they sort of give you a piece of advice saying, you know, you're not going to make it out of here? Right, so at the beginning of the journey, there was a, a very strange moment where two uh, Iranian-trained Afghan intelligence officers detained me, and I was initially very concerned about this because I thought... I mean, there was no government, really. I mean, the Taliban had fallen, the Karzai's government hadn't really taken over, there hadn't really been any government in central Afghanistan since the Russian invasion. So I was very unsure who these people were. And anyway, they said, if you walk across Afghanistan, you will definitely die. I mean, you'll die either in the snow or the walls, or the Taliban will get you. I mean, somebody's going to get you. You can't walk alone across Afghanistan as a foreigner. Um... But in truth, uh, they underestimated the extent to which Afghan communities looked after me all the way through. So my ability to make it from Iraq to Kabul uh, owed almost nothing to me. I mean, what happened is that every night I would turn up in place, somebody would give me a bed for the night, and they would often themselves escort me to the next village, so that, or at least hand me over to someone. I mean, the number of times in Afghanistan where I was walking completely alone were quite few. Um, and, yeah, I, I realised that actually you didn't need a government, you didn't need a police force, you didn't need anything, because these villages controlled their territory very well and provided you were welcome in their territory, you were fine. And were you keeping a diary at that stage? Were you immediately thinking, like, this is going to be a book, and how did... Yes, what the, the kind of mechanics of So I'd been so. keeping a diary every night uh, during that two-year period. I wrote for nearly one and a half, two hours a night in a series of dodgy Iranian notebooks that I was buying along the way and that I would then post home. Having photocopied, I'd actually take a full photocopy of them and I'd post one photocopy version home and then separately I'd post the originals home because I didn't completely trust the Nepali or Pakistani post service to get this out. Um, and I was very, very clear in my mind that I didn't want to do it for a book. So there have been some conversations before I left where I'd gone in to see a very famous publisher called I think Michael Fishwick, who tried to suggest that we got to tie it into some video offer. And I really wanted to retain a sense that I was doing it for its own sake, not for a book, so I'd been very reluctant to get involved. At the end of the journey, I was faced with this crazy amount of diary, because, you know, well over a year and a half's worth of two hours a night writing, and 550 village houses. And the problem, of course, is that, really, for the reader, it's one damn thing after another. I mean... You know, I stay night one with um, Abdurraf Ghafuri in Dalatiar. I stay the next night with Bushir Khan in Sangizat. I stay the third night with uh, Nasr Beg in Kalinao. 
and you're going from one mud house to another mud house, one cup of tea and bread to another cup of tea and bread, and a series of stories which are quite disconnected because these people are 20, 25 miles apart. So I then realised, actually, at the end of my Afghan walk, that my Afghan walk, which was a tiny portion of my journey, so 32 days out of almost two years, formed a, a perfect story. And I never did anything with the rest. So all my diaries on Iran, Pakistan, India, Nepal, um, sit in the cupboard in Scotland and have never been turned into anything. What was it about that section you said it made the perfect story? What was it about it? What was it you got from it that made it a, a good, a perfect story? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the first thing is that it, 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 by accident, I. Um, was probably the first foreigner to walk from Herat to Kabul in I don't know how long. But certainly I would have thought since the Russian invasion, since the late 1970s. So certainly for 40 years nobody had had done this. Um, um, So the, the second thing is that it was, of course, in its way, a sort of perfect adventure story. I mean, there were wolves. People shot at me. I found a lost city in the mountains. I had this dog with me. Um, I was stopped by the Taliban. Um, uh, it was incredibly beautiful. Uh, and these and the Afghanistan at that period, after 40 years of war, was... Um, was a place completely unlike anywhere else. I mean, everywhere else I'd been in Asia, you know, you'd read Bruce Chapman's descriptions and you'd get the impression that you were going to some sort of medieval panorama, but in reality everybody was in T-shirts and jeans and talking about David Beckham. There was some of that in Afghanistan, and whenever I found it, I tried to document it as faithfully as I could. It's my stab against Bruce Chapman. But the reality is that it was also a place where... I'd be walking across a snowfield and I'd come across a dead body lying in the snow and then uh, a few hours later I'd come across a man on a white horse kind of charging across a snowfield with seven men with guns running along behind him. I mean, the, the, it is... The whole thing operated on a very weird epic scale and the individual Afghans that I met were just extraordinary people. I mean, they weren't humans in the way that I was used to. I mean, they had so much confidence. I mean, the sense that every village chief felt that he was a king and carried himself with far more confidence than any British prime minister. Did you end up going with the publisher you talked with before? How did it? How did it become the book that was published? So I had met and really, I didn't go with Michael Feshwick. No, I went instead with Picador. And it was because I'd met an editor who was incredibly laid back and understated and didn't talk at all about um, making documentaries or video spin-offs or amping it up or marketing. He just seemed very interested in a very gentle way uh, in the the story and letting me write it as I wanted and how was it that you wanted to, to write it? Did you have kind of a, a definite method for crunching down, you know, what still must have been quite a lot of, of, um, of written work, you know, even from 30 days we were writing from, for two hours a night? Um, so I began uh, writing a very um, simplistic story arc. And I was very lucky in that Afghan journey, which I haven't been in my subsequent books, to find that actually the real walk corresponded very easily to a traditional story arc. So roughly a third of the way through the journey, I find a lost city. Two-thirds way through, I'm attacked by the Taliban. I mean, the whole thing is only sort of, in that sense, structurally, it was very simple. And there was a beginning and an end, and there was a single character in it. The strongest part of the book, I locked myself away in Scotland for six weeks. And during that six weeks, um, saw nobody. 
So I would wake up thinking about the book, I'd write all day, I'd go to sleep thinking about the book, I'd wake up the next morning thinking about the book. And I wrote about half of it that way. And the other half, which is less good, took me nearly nine months to write. Even though I was writing eight hours a day, just the mere fact that I was writing it with my parents around uh, meant that I was no longer absorbed in it in the same way. I wasn't dreaming it. And what was the, the reception when the book came out? Did, did it immediately make an impact? And, and how did that change your life? That? So, um, it had a sort of modest critical reception in England, and I was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. And there were some polite reviews. There were some quite snooty reviews, actually. The Sunday Times were very snooty and said that, essentially attacked me for not being colourful enough or Chapman-esque enough. Uh, and I won something called the Adacho Prize from the Ross Appellation. But it didn't sell very many copies. Then after I'd been in Iraq, I went to the United States, and the Americans were very interested in buying my Iraq book. But nobody wanted this Afghan book in the States. Uh, and again, Farrah Strauss said it was too impersonal, it wasn't enough about me, my motivation, my own doing. Um, but somewhat reluctantly, Harcourt, who wanted to publish my Iraq book, agreed that they would also publish my Afghan book and that they'd bring it out two months before my Iraq book. But they'd only publish in paperback, not hardback. So they did a limited run in paperback. Uh, and it got a front page review in the New York Times book review and hit the top of the and the top ten of the New York Times bestseller list almost immediately and then stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for the next sixteen weeks. In a really weird way, because there was no hardback version of it, there was only this paperback version, they hadn't printed enough copies that um, and then the Iraq book then came two months after this book, and suddenly all the timing and the structure was wrong, so the Iraq book was then completely lost in that <laughs> flurry around the Afghan book. Uh, so the, Af- the Iraq book, which they thought they'd bought as a sort of genius, and the Afghan book, which they thought was a sort of charity gesture, um, all flipped itself around. Yeah. It is remarkable how often we, we hear very similar stories to that from people. We had um, Joanne Harris on uh, a week ago who wrote Chocolat, and she talked about having written two novels that sunk without trace and she was then given this kind of stern briefing about how everything had to be sex and car chases from now on otherwise no one would ever read her books and so she deliberately ignored all She did the advice. exact opposite everything that she'd been told to do she did the exact precise opposite and out of that was born Chocolat The Smash mm. Yeah um, And in terms of the, the Iraq book you know that, that period you go as the administrator in the immediate post-invasion period were you thinking this was going to be a book when you went, or was this another adventure? No, then, then I was very much serving the British government as a British official. Um, and although I kept some notes, I, I was far too busy to really keep proper diary notes. And then I lost quite a lot of these notes when my compounds attacked and went out. So, um, yeah, there I was trying to do a job. How did you get the job, and what was, the, what was its nature? So... Um, I was finishing my Afghan book in Scotland. I saw a Saddam statue come down. I heard that they were looking for volunteers to go out to Iraq. I emailed a couple of friends who didn't get back to me, presumably because they were too busy doing what they were doing. Uh, so I flew to Amman and I got on a taxi and I took a taxi across the border to Baghdad and I uh, got into the green zone and I went straight to the director of operations and said hello I'm here and he's this amazing man called Andy Bear Park he's this kind of huge guy who's now a yogi in New Zealand but was then a kind of celebrity international development hero who had taken over one of Saddam Hussein's bathrooms and filled his baths with bottles of vodka and ice and, and he said to me um, Rory this is amazing all the other people I'm trying to employ are still stuck in the airport in Baghdad six miles away and they haven't been able to get from the airport here in the last few days and you've just taken a taxi in from Jordan and you're here so what kind of job do you want and 
I rung my friend, and I was offered a sort of fancy job in headquarters, or I could go out and do this job in the field. So I ran my friend Felix, uh, who'd worked in the Balkans, and he said, uh, take the field job, because although the job in headquarters sounds much more senior and more fancy, actually the field job is really the only fun in these organisations. So I said, yeah, take the field job. So it then moved very quickly, because they were desperate to fill these jobs, so I then back was put through a very short course in how to walk through a minefield and got my uniform and set the other ones put on a plane and then was dropped in this province uh, where I was the only civilian in a military camp of a thousand people with a soldier saying to me, thank God you've arrived, we're going to hand the province over to you and we're, we're, uh, we're going to move out of this whole political space. Um, and then it became very interesting because I was trying to put into operation what I felt I'd learned through my two-year walk on how to deal with rural communities. I'd felt that the whole operations in Afghanistan had gone wrong because people didn't spend enough time in rural areas, they weren't good enough at local culture, they weren't attentive enough to... And they weren't active enough. So I tried to sort of put my model into uh, a sign. Uh, pushed ahead and I felt I was making enormous progress. And the one records that I did have, which weren't really my diary, was my weekly report back to Baghdad, where every week, if you read my reports, they say, you know, I've recruited another 400 policemen this week, or I've held the local elections, or rebuilt 23 schools. So it sounds like it's all getting better and better and better, but the reality is that by the time I ended, uh, a lot of the buildings I had constructed were actually set alight, and there were kind of columns of smoke going up around my building. And there were 150 mortars and rocket-propelled grenades raining into my compound. And um, I was having to evacuate my civilian staff in armoured vehicles. And my bodyguard team was on the roof with heavy machine guns. And I was trying to convince Baghdad to send an AC-130 Spectre gunship to try to shoot people around my compound. Uh, and all these things that I apparently been getting better and better and better over... 11 months had clearly been getting worse and worse and worse in reality and that all these indicators have been deeply misleading. And how do you feel now on the back of those experiences about intervention, about the way that the West has behaved in these countries over the past 15 years or so? So I concluded at the time that I mean, it had been a terrible mistake and we shouldn't have been in Iraq and we didn't know what we were doing. And that a lot of people... When I came back, I went to a meeting where Douglas Hurd was addressing it, and he said, you know, what we're missing is old-fashioned colonial officers who speak the local language and go out into the local areas and spend the time getting to know the tribes. And I felt that I was about as close as you were likely to get in the modern world to somebody trying to do the job in that way, and it didn't work. And it didn't work because... uh, a, I wasn't that person. I wasn't spending 20 years on the ground. Uh, and B, even if I wanted to be that kind of person, behave in that way, society back home in Britain wouldn't really have supported the idea of me romping around being a pseudo-colonial officer. But most importantly of all, the Iraqi population would never put up with it in the way that people would in the 19th century with the idea of some strange young Englishman trying to govern a province because they would feel very, very quickly and quite rightly that they were going to be fighting for Islam in Iraq against a foreign military occupation. So trying to, albeit under the jargon of human rights and development, trying to build a nation in the middle of an insurgency, uh, I concluded was pretty close to impossible. And when I then returned to Afghanistan and I started working with Richard Holbrook or General McChrystal or General Petraeus, one of these people, um, increasingly I found myself when they said, you know, what should we do in Helmand? I would say, you shouldn't be in Helmand. And they'd say, well, okay, that decision's made. Don't give me problems, give me solutions. I was like, no, no, I'm just going to give you problems. This is, I don't have a solution to this. This is not possible. Um, uh, now, I don't want to go as far as saying, as a result, 
all intervention is impossible because I saw in my own younger life in Bosnia how an intervention saved potentially hundreds of thousands of lives and ended a war and um, ended up with all these war criminals on trial. The militias disbanded and Bosnia certainly in a much better state than it was in 1994 and you can make the same case for Sierra Leone in case even for Kosovo but so the, the difficulty is that in certain circumstances clearly intervention can work and I'm happy to feel that it can be a good thing but Iraq and Afghanistan were not those cases and I don't feel that anybody has a reliable recipe for telling when it's going to work and when it isn't going to work and, and that's the problem I mean it, you know you can try to formalise it and say well maybe it's more difficult countries with certain population size or it's more different outside Europe or it, but really we don't know why somehow in Bosnia there were more injuries to American soldiers on the basketball pitch than ever happened outside the wire or in Kosovo there was no insurgency whereas in Iraq and Afghanistan there was You expressed some of your views about um, intervention in a cover article for Time magazine in 2008 sort of addressed the the two presidential, the then mm. presidential candidates, and that then became a book. What was the response to your to your views? I mean, doing um, doing nothing or not knowing or um, not being able to see when you might be able to help presumably isn't a very popular message, but was there a, a good response? No, I mean, it, it's a terrible message. And, and I realise now that I'm in government why it's so difficult for people. I mean, essentially, they're calling you in for advice. And you're saying, it's impossible, don't do it. Right? And that's not what they want to hear. So the, the, the classic joke that I... Uh, is that you go in and they say, um, we are proposing to drive a car off a cliff. Should we wear a seatbelt? And I say, don't drive the car off the cliff. And they say, that decision's made. Should we wear a seatbelt? And you say, I guess, why not? <laughs> or a seatbelt, right? And then they're like, we consulted policy expert Rory Stewart and he suggested that we should wear a seatbelt, right? And that was perpetually happening to me. So I would say, look, just don't do this in Helmand. They'd say that decision's made, you know. But do you think we should have people who speak the language as well and spend a long time in the field? And I'm like, yeah, great. <laughs> then policy expert Rory Stewart said, you know, you know more people who speak the language as well. And in terms of your, you know, your subsequent political career, how is your writing fitted with that, not least in just the practicalities of finding time? Well, it's impossible now I'm a minister, and it almost killed me when I was the backbencher. How did you do it? I uh, wrote early mornings, I wrote late evenings, I wrote every weekend, I wrote every train journey, but I mean, from the point of view of my wife, of the fact that I've got a three and a half year old and a one year old son... I mean, it's completely terrible. And it, and it was a really slow book, and a, the most painful, The March is the most recent book, the most painful book I've ever written. I mean, it took me nearly three and a half years to write compared to a year for the other books. And I struggled and fought and struggled and fought to make sense of it. And I realised that there was a deeper problem, which is that I'm an active politician writing about my own voters. So it's, it's all very well making jokes about the guys I stay with in Afghanistan or the people I work with in Iraq, but uh, and it's all very well V.S. Naipaul turning up in Britain and saying it's all rubbish and everyone's ignorant and you know, it's angry. But uh, that becomes a bit more tricky when you're dealing with your own country and finding out how to express disappointment, bewilderment, bewilderment express that somebody really annoys you or you think they're a bad person when they're one of your voters it's quite it's quite tough it's interesting that Naipaul is, is one of your touchstones because he's not you know he's a writer with his own baggage and controversy attached to him and things as well particularly being very rude about the Caribbean and yeah. and all of that why why do you hold him in, well in I life? love the sparseness of his prose I love the structure of the patient, patient exposure to a single individual over many pages. 
I love him beginning um, among the believers with a dodgy translator who's supposed to come and meet him in his hotel who doesn't quite make it and the taxi driver that doesn't quite turn up that his insistence that he's going to open a book with four or five pages of something that isn't even funny he's not trying to be funny it's just an absolutely drab account of sitting in the hotel and the taxi driver said he'd come and he didn't come uh I, I, I trust him, I and mean, I think there's an incredible intellectual courage and honesty there, and I totally believe in his rudeness, I think. His <laughs> capacity to be that rude takes enormous courage, which I struggle with. I mean, because I, I share a lot of his frustration, I and mean, I often feel about Britain as he clearly feels about India, that it isn't the kind of place that I want it to be and that so much of it is going in a direction I don't want it to go in and so much of it is just yeah and, but he, he does it he does it and I think in a way you know there's a quality there which is that kind of that, that shard of ice in his heart is something that I can't quite he's also incredibly clever I mean I think the other thing is that he's um, is that I never quite get over the realisation that although somebody like Henry James is very obviously flamboyantly or T.S. Eliot incredibly intellectual and clever it's the sense that even the very simple writers such as Nightfall or to some extent Tolstoy are just unbelievably clever they're simply concealing it within a rather simple personality not quite in Michael, but certainly with Tolstoy or Henry James. I mean, I, or Lawrence Stern, I mean, I'm obsessed with Tristram Shandy, is, is their brains are just so much bigger than mine's ever going to be. I mean, I just read these, but I just cannot believe their capacity to imagine so much so convincingly. Returning to your, um, your last book, you've already said you struggled to write it can you talk a little bit more about it and also a little bit more about the, the sort of more personal aspect um, of it which presumably given what you said was also a struggle for you yeah so I, I wanted to walk across uh, the along the English Scottish border and on the Hadrian's Wall um, with my father uh, who I loved very much um, the First problem, of course, my father, when I began the walk, was in his late 80s, so he wasn't really able to walk very much. Uh, and I also imagined it as a moment where it should be this extraordinary... Um, and this is where the problems of fantasy come. That, that, you know, this would be this incredible moment where my father would open up about his whole life and I would suddenly discover these deep truths about him. None of which happened. I mean, he, he was a very garrulous man, but all the anecdotes were anecdotes I'd heard before, and there was never any great revelation of inner in a life, so that it became this very weird walk where we weren't walking and where every conversation, which I, by then, my literal-mindedness, my, my anti-chapmanness, had got to the extent that I did that walk with a tape recorder so that the conversations in that book come from 125 hours of cassette tape transcribed into nearly 400,000 words of text before I boil it down the conversation. So there's endless conversations with my father, with him refusing to say what I want him to say. Uh, and then uh, I completed the walk, and I thought, you know, th- th- this is how mad I was, right? I thought this walk was going to follow some sort of film script storyline. So I thought, you know, I- I'm going to start with a romantic idea of Britain, and then I'm going to be really, really depressed by the reality of Britain. And then at the end of the book, I'm going to get this sudden transformation where I'll suddenly you know, wake up and realise that it all comes together and it all makes sense and the beginning and the end connect in some beautiful way. And of course what happened is the third bit never happened, right? I, <laughs> I had my, my naive hopes. I had my really depressing, commercially exposure to the book. There was nothing in the end, right? I had no end to my book, right? And, and I... 
And, and it, I kept going for two years, working, and I was thinking, who are my heroes? What's the metaphor? What's my story? But in a way, I'm too literal-minded for that. I can't impose a, a narrative on something that doesn't have a narrative. And the Afghan walk worked and gave me my story. I wasn't forced to impose it on it. And we, we always try and ask everyone we talk to about money in connection to writing, because it's often undiscussed. I mean, you've had other jobs throughout your literary career, but have you, have you made appreciable sums of money from your literary work? Yes. Or I, mean, I, I, made a, I, made a, I made a lot of money from the Afghan book. Because it sold, um, I mean, it's the New York Times bestseller for 18 weeks, which meant that I think that book has sold many hundreds of thousands, maybe 600, 700,000 copies. Um, now, I, I very foolishly bought a house in the United States in 2008 and then sold it at a fantastic loss in 2010. <laughs> so, <laughs> almost all the money I had saved up I managed to lose through my idiocy, but that's a, it wasn't that I didn't make. It's like Richard Kipling's brief. Brief yeah. instalment in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was not successful. Anyway, j- just to get back to my um, walking okay. book, The Marches, is that in the end, my father, who was really keen on this book and wanted to be part of this book and was very keen on his role in this book, um, uh, sat down with me and we had this conversation for an hour. When I was complaining about that, I had no end to my book. He kept saying, How can I help you with the book? Uh, and at the end of the conversation, he died in my arms, right? So my father died in my... Uh, uh, and in doing so, provided the end of my book, which he had been very keen to provide all the way through the, <laughs> the journey. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I'm joking about it now um, because it's two and a half years on. And I, also because I was very fond of him. I mean, I loved him very much. I had a very easy, strong relationship with him, which meant that in a way his, his death at age 93 was probably less traumatic than it would have been if I felt there would be none resolved this season. He died very well. I mean, he was a very macho guy. And he was giving me instructions right way through his heart attack. You know, put the pill there, lie me down, set me up, push, or um, uh, And so the book became, in the end, a book with a beginning and a middle and an end. And the end was, was my father's death. And the book became much more about my attempt to understand my father in a sense that actually in that last conversation, that last moment, I realised that the meaning of the book and of my father's life had nothing to do with how much I could extract on a cassette tape. He was a man who existed not through speech but in action. Uh, and it was the character of that encounter that summarised everything that I admired about him, rather than my attempts to get him to reflect on his early childhood. In fact, I was trying to do to my father exactly what this terrible creative writing teacher at my school was trying to do to me, which was get him to expose the wounds in his soul and talk about his trauma during the war and things, uh, none of which he wished to cooperate with. I think um, I too have a, a desire for any ending, so I wanted to... Um turn to one of your lines uh, in this book where you said, I believe walks are miracles. And I wanted to sort of round out by talking about, by asking you to explain what it is about walking that provides for you such rich meat for, for writing. So particularly walking in a country like Afghanistan. Walking in Britain is a bit different because Britain compared to Afghanistan, is a depopulated landscape. Uh, Much of the British countryside, you see nobody in fields, whereas if you walk in Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan or India or Nepal, even the most remote desert, somebody will emerge with a camel from nowhere, or you'll pass a field and somebody will shout and call you over and they're looking after the sheep and they have a small brass pot of tea. And you access communities that you can't access except on foot, and you're walking at the same pace as everybody else. When I walked into Bamiyan, I followed donkeys and mules and people coming into market for the day, all of whom are travelling at my pace. I'm walking at the same pace as the man ploughing behind the oxen. Walking, therefore, exposes me to the landscape, but to the human components in history of the landscape and things make sense for me as a historian by walking. The distance that Alexander the Great had to walk or that Genghis Khan's army had to walk makes sense to me. As well as the spiritual experience for an hour a day of suddenly imagining what the world is like without me in it. 
of being able to suddenly in the gap between two breaths or in some other way imagine this whole scene continuing without me that these people are still alive and that bird and that tree and everything makes me both the recipient of a gift but ultimately equally a recipient of a gift with everyone else and in the most important sense not relevant I think that's a great note to finish on Rory thank you for being such a, a gracious uh, guest and talking so openly about such a variety of, of themes and topics and we wish you all the best with both your writing and your politics thank you hello it's us again with an update from our lives Cassia what have you been up to um, well, things are going brilliantly for me. We're, we're currently recording this in the corridor of, of my home um, because I've locked us out. So <laughs> we're not recording this in our usual place. I've just got to, we're just going to record this and then I'm going to find a key somewhere. Um, but apart from that, which I blame on, on jet lag, so I've just been out in America um, giving a couple of talks. Apart from that, everything's great. Um, actually, I have to say the acoustic properties of this hall are, are quite good, so I think it's a, it's a happy coincidence. <laughs> um, for myself, I finished my book, which is very exciting, or rather I sent it to the copy editor, which is a um, woo, big landmark. So I'm now having a little holiday, which is very nice. He's stand up in shorts, he's very much in holiday mode. Very much in holiday mode. Um, yeah, so in England this week and then away next week and then waiting to get notes back. So this has been... Uh, Anyway, always take notes. <laughs> anyway, always take notes. <laughs> anyway, always take notes. Hosted, as ever, um, <laughs> August, always take notes. By me, Simon Aikham. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our uh, music is by Jessica Danheiser. And Zara Hankier handles our social media, while our graphic design is by James Edgar. You can, of course, find us on social media. We are on uh, Twitter, at Take Notes Always on Instagram and Facebook at Always Take Notes. And please do also feel free to contribute to our Patreon account, uh, which you can uh, find by searching um, Always Take Notes. iTunes. Oh, yes, and of course, iTunes. Well, do we mention iTunes? We always mention iTunes. Do we? That's usually your job. Okay, well, I I will mention iTunes. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. That is definitely your job. Anyway, (laughs) thank you very much.